Hello and welcome to the second Country Stride podcast. I'm sitting here today in Glenridding with author, illustrator and fell walker, Mark Richards. Morning, Mark. Hello, David. Great to be with you. Uh, what a day. It was very autumnal this morning. Almost felt like a bit of frost, very cold overnight, but wow, heated up quickly. It's remarkable how the seasons change because we've had one of those peculiar summers where you have lots of dry weather in June and July, and then suddenly we, the rains came back. So it's sort of hastened that transition phase to autumn. Uh, fungus is more prevalent. You have the tinges in the trees. But today, can you believe it? Whenever we come up to this neck of the woods, it's a a hive of purposeful activity, all kinds of walkers here and they're doing a lot of work still to uh, repair the beck and the, and the bridge down in the valley here. Um, always a great spot for walkers setting off onto the high, high hills. Yeah, people climb Hellvellin from here automatically, but 50 years ago when I first came up here and explored, it was all about Patterdale and you'd go up Grisdale or up to the hole in the wall onto Striding Edge. But now the orientation has changed and Glen Ridding is the focus. So we have this large car park, the National Park, TIC and Information Centre. So the setup has changed and the uh, relationship to the steamers is very much the focus. Helvellyn dominates the walking around here, doesn't it? But we're not going that way. What's our route and who will we be walking with? Well, we've got two people. We've got Tim Clark, who's from Patterdale, who knows the area and the community very well. And with him, we'll go up by up the Greenside Road and go, uh, go up to Nick Head and over Sheffield Pike. But when we get up to the mine, we'll meet Eddie Poole. And Eddie Poole is very special. In 1962, they closed the mine. And up to the final years, he actually was working down the mine. So he remembers vividly the people and the levels and the activities that went into that mine. I've climbed Sheffield Pike before a long time ago, but it's not one that sticks in the memory, but you're fond of it. It's very focal. When you cruise up the lake, since Sunday Crag isn't often referred to as the Ellswater Fell because your attention is drawn towards it. Helvellyn is set back. But if you drive up the valley, by Aero Force and Glencoin Park, it's a very striking fell and covered in heather and, and a, a lovely subject. Brilliant. It sounds like a, a fabulous walk and I think it's time to get going. Yeah, well, I'll go down and find Tim and we'll start the walk. through the village uh, and passed up into a much more open perspective and uh, I've got a wonderful outlook uh, and I'm in the company of Tim Clark from Patterdale. Tim, great to see you. Thank you. And you have a particular interest in the heritage of the village and how it perceives uh, itself and, do, yeah. uh, and the impact post-Storm Desmond. How did that impact on the village? Well, when uh, Storm Desmond took place in December 2015, the back was completely flooded. There was massive problems in the, in the area that part of the road was taken away. And it, it was almost a sort of message came from that, that this community uh, is very resilient. Mm -hmm. It's very able to adjust to these sort of pressures on it. And um, some real heroes came out of the December 2015 flood. 
And even now, if you go to see the village, you know, the work's still going on endlessly. Gosh, we have three it, years on, it's <laughs> still an issue. But it was a point in time where people could think, you know, the community itself has all these challenges to deal with. And some just fall from the sky like that, you can't do much about it. But there are others where you can, and that's my conviction, having had a, a, a place here since 1988 and passionately believing in Glenridding and what it offers both to tourists and the local residents. I mean, my interest is to try to see how the community can do a little bit of blue sky thinking, believing to think it's where, it's, where does the community wanna, wanna be? Yes. What's gonna happen to the community in the next 10, 20 years? What sort of community can develop from where we are now? Quite. And actually, you need, for that perspective, to go back to where the community was. Yes. And the community was created from the Greenside lead mine. All the houses around here were built by the mining companies and it all closed in 1962 after being the biggest lead mine in, in the UK. I think you mentioned about uh, Al Gore. That was, <laughs> I imagine, yeah, an extraordinary event, really, because I was going to speak at the, there was a, the Paris Copenhagen uh, conference on climate change in 2015, which took place actually at the moment when Storm Desmond hit Glen Ridding. And I was staggered because Al Gore, the, the vice president of the US, has taken a leadership role on climate change issues. And he was scheduled to make a speech to all the ministers from 190 countries. And blow me, he stood up and in his presentation, there was a picture of the flooding in Glen Ridding that happened the day before. My community in Glen Ridding was being talked about at this major international conference. Some genuine heroes appeared from the community and the chair of the parish council took a leadership role in trying to rethink the whole thing. What do we do about flooding? Can we as a community take leadership on this? And in the end of the day, a flood control committee was established, 80 something recommendations were made. And it was just a great, great experience that the community was taking ownership. So, so my interest is to see how to galvanize yes. community interest into positive wealth generating experience, but based on the past. Quite. The past and the future are intricately related. Intricately and most people who come here come to climb the fells. We'll have a go at it we now will. ourselves. I think <laughs> okay. it's, a, it's a worthy day for it. And I look forward to further conversation yeah. with you, Tim. We're coming higher up the track, which is now, of course, it's a track rather than a road. I can hear a tractor in the background. So you feel even in a, a really rural setting and you've got a, a great view up to my left up to Mere Beck, where there's a comparatively new path, and Burkhouse Moor and Blee Cove. I'm almost intrigued by the use of the word cove. It's very prevalent around here. Cove, you think of as an inlet in the sea, but here you've got these great hanging valleys that are called coves. And ahead of me, I can see Stang End with its juniper bank. And up to my right, the heather and rock of Sheffield Pike and the screes running down to the track. The actual name Sheffield Pike derives from William Sheffield Esquire, who was the last mine agent for the Duke of Devonshire, who up until 1819 was the most major figure associated with this area. And so then when the Ordnance Survey came along a few years later, folklore of the valley always associated this fell on this side with the name Sheffield. 
Well, Tim, we're heading up the valley and we're getting a much more open perspective here. We can see from Keldas, round uh, Mirbeck and Burkhouse Moor. And we're passing a, a line of a till terrace, Holton Terrace. What's the history of this terrace? They were originally mining houses built by the mining companies for the miners. There are about 200 miners and people working on the mines at the time it was mm -hmm. peak operation. The challenge for the community now is that these are small houses. Quite. And there's been a big demand for second homes. Something like three of these houses are actually fully occupied and the rest are vacant for people coming and going. And that's very difficult for the community to deal with because at the time when the mine was functioning, the community was everything. You know very well the mining community has the life, has the dynamism and energy. And here when you have people who are part of the village but not part of the village, very, it's complicated. It's, it's sort of divorced, isn't it? It's very difficult to deal with. And yeah. there's a big demand at the moment for the community for local homes. These sort of houses Would be are reaching, what, £450,000 oh. on the market. So the locals here who want to live in the village, can't possibly, they can't possibly can afford it. So, so there's a big demand for affordable housing. Yet, ironically, all these houses are around, but they're can't not available. Use them can't in use the proper them. way. So it's a, it's it's a, a frustration. A it is a frustration. <laughs> Well, we're coming in the shelter of a great spinny of Scotch pine trees. Uh, they call, create a, a little bit of shade on a hot sunny day as it is today. But I've been very aware that the valley, despite the agricultural change that has gone on, is still very green. There's a lot of trees still here. There's on the uh, southern bank there's an area that has been conifered and cut down. But fundamentally the valley is very green. Uh, the name Glenridding is intriguing. Really? The yeah. earliest spelling is Glynrodden. Glyn is like the Welsh word for a valley. Uh, it took on a romantic Scottish twang to it to make it Glen, but Roden is Old English and means the place of bracken. Okay. And bracken is an understory plant under trees. So how high do you think the trees will have gone then? Well, my understanding is that the tree line used to be 600 metres, so all these uh, mountains you see around us would have be, had trees right up almost to the summits. So there's been big, big changes over time. One of the interesting elements of the Storm Desmond episode and the flooding is a lot of awareness of the need to keep the soil in place. If you look up here, yep. these are recent uh, saplings have been planted here with money coming out of the resources following right. Storm Desmond to try to keep the soil in place and to, and to control... On a steep bank. On a steep bank because the, the dangers of further storms, and you remember Storm Desmond was a one in a thousand year mm. event. Or 10 uh, years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which has almost happened the, the year after. So That's there's right. a real consciousness now about preserving the woodland, and recreating Stability. Maybe some of the conditions that used to exist here before yep, that's the deforestation took place. What sort of species do you think they will have chosen? They're planting things like mountain ash. You can see one just in front of you here. Mountain ash, um, silver birch, oak trees. They're trying to find a, a, a species mix rather than you know, serried ranks of monoculture conifers. I mean, I think that, that whole mentality has changed a lot over the last few, few decades. So it, it, You can understand the use of birch, of course, because that's Burkhouse Moor up that side. Oh, right. So they, the bark of birch, I think, was used. They used birch 
productively the farmers. There was the minerals that the bark gave the sheep and the cattle. So the use of birch for hurdles and so forth was a very important uh, tree to cultivate, as it were. And so the name of the fell reflects that wooded connection uh, and that continuity you suggest. <laughs> While I've arrived up in the evidence of what I could say is the evidence of the mine, uh, spoil areas and yeah. some buildings, yeah. and I've encountered the great man himself, Eddie. Uh, Eddie Poole. Have you lived in this village all your life? And my father, and my grandfather, and I think my great-grandfather as well. Great. Now, you worked in here from when, precisely? Well, I come out of the army in uh, uh, forty-nine. Mm. I'm 88 at the minute, like, so right. I come and we were, went in at 18, and then I was going to go back mechanican, but uh, I don't know what made us come to. I asked, met the manager, he says, well, you can come to the mines, so he was a fitter. Right. So that was how well he ended Right, and what, what did a fitter do? Well, in the mine, you had pumps. Yes. Electric and ordinary water ones, compressed air, and that was what I used to have to go and either fix up, that's my shop, just around this corner. Crikey, ah. you mean the building's strictly ah, still here? Ah, ah. Come on, I'll show Come you. Come around the corner, have a look. All this was buildings, and then there was ten blacksmiths in the old days. Yes. Like, in them days, there were bloody good blacksmiths, you know. Right. Oh, and another little story, you've heard of Mr Faraday? Yes. Well, that's bollocks, that electric <laughs> motor was done here. Beep. <laughs> According to what the a fella called Milligan, yes, he had the uh, mind a, a little horsepower, one horsepower, it was about this big. Yeah. when Milligan's day, yeah. but he had the, the amateur turned and everything in here. Quite That's what, the, and he did do it. Now, whether whether Faraday asked him or showed him or what, I don't know. That's intriguing, but, uh, isn't it? Faraday stayed in the part of the town. There you are. The gossip will have got around nearly. Being a cute man, he will have spotted it. Now, I'm intrigued by the kind of people you were working with, but they came from mining backgrounds, all of them. Well, their ancestors. I mean, they'd be born and lived and worked the mines all their lives. You yes, know? that's it. Now, I've got Cornish tin mining in me, yeah. and my name, Mark Richards. We're all marks no, going you're back. You're going to get mad at us now. Oh no! But there was all sorts: Germans, Italians, right. West Cumberlands, all sorts, and we all got on together. Apart from, <laughs> it's right. The it's, uh, aye, aye, <laughs> nobody liked the Cornish. Oh, and, and, and the joiner down there, Phil Andrews, they called him. Uh, he was a joiner, and I think he was the most hated bloody man. Must be living in the far off southwest corner of England. Uh, they weren't good at mixing. Mind, they were bloody good miners. It is generously give me a, a sketch that he's done this morning of the vertical shafts mm. uh, from the low level, yeah. which is just above the mine buildings here, or what were here, uh, and he sort of gives me the clue as to the way the shafts went down. Not to the lateral chambers, but the actual main shafts that led mm. down and went down to 220 fathoms, which actually must have been below the level of the lake. Oh, it was, definitely, yeah. And you've got a quarter of a mile written on the top ah, one. Well, that was top from level. The, the looting, 
loose's tongue. A mile and a quarter, it would be, not a mile. Oh, a mile and a quarter yeah. into the mountain. Yeah, yeah. And then there was another shaft sunk well, down. Well, this is the shaft that these top lads would go down. So Smith's is the, is the first shaft that's down. That's the first shaft down, yeah. And that went down how many fathoms? 90. I think it's, it's about 90 on that, yeah. Because they were into seams. That's right. Uh, and and the sometimes si it was good and sometimes it was a waste of time. It was barren you know, is uh, the word, I yeah. think, isn't it? I this, think it's 22 different lateral channels. That's right. At the end of each of them you have the vein. But see, so, why they went down, it was much easier to what they call stopping. It was a damn sight easier going in and blowing the material down than what it was boring at the top to be lifted up. More dangerous, mind, but oh, that's how right. they did it. Now, you use uh, dynamite, or what did you use? Dynamite. Uh, and was it one man's job to do the detonation? No, no, just did it. Anybody did anybody it. Anybody did it. Yeah, oh, health and safety. Oh, oh, there was no. <laughs> well, it was local people from Penrith that really got this going in the mid well, about 1820, I believe, which is a bit before your time and my time. Uh, but by about the 1940s, it was really the biggest mine in Britain, lead Aye, mine. that was right. But all these houses that you've just passed, they were all belonged to the mines. Yes. And so yep. that... I, well, I'll tell you, when generally out was here, it was about 100. Yeah. But during the war, there was 300. My uh, gosh. The new shaft. Do you know who bought that? Canadian soldiers. Well, I'm glad. Ah. And we had Italians working. Some of them Italians were bloody good workers and all. Right. But uh, we bought So the that. Canadians the, did the very bottom the one, which, very which bottom. is a long way down. Well, it would go from uh, 175 down to about 220. Now, uh, seldom seen people came over here That's as well. That's right. I, there's, still, there's still the old footpath that's come over. Yeah, um, I would, over Nick Head. In fact, Nick we got Head. it to Minus yes. Yeah, uh, and you can go around Glencoin Valley That's Head. Right at the did, top did, of the valley, right into Matador. From, people from Matadale yeah, came and worked yeah, here. Yeah. They, when they came here, they only worked the shift. Yeah. And then they had some houses which had bloody well been destroyed up there. And the, the camp, well, they lived in they there. They lodged up there as uh, come, come, went home on a Friday night, I think, right. and done the farming or whatever they did. And there's nobody else who worked in the mine left in the village? No, no, no. You, no, you, you and go, Malcolm. Uh, and, yeah. and Alan, are you saying? Well, Alan lives in Penrith now. Oh, he's he, gone he, abroad. He, <laughs> he, his wife wanted to leave, so he had to go. Oh, he's a wise man. Man, he uh, listened to his well, wife. That's not a wise thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's always wise, though. That's good. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the camaraderie of you, you guys together. You came from different social areas. You got people from different countries. Did you develop a, a common language, as it were? No, but I can tell you this. When my father was a lad, you wouldn't have got a job here unless you were a Methodist. That's it. Nonconformism ah, is vital yeah, in mining. Yeah. Uh, my family were all Methodists. My parents met at the Methodist chapel. Yeah, it's, Aye, that's right. See, uh -huh. You can't get away from it. Uh -huh. There was Methodism in their madness. <laughs> I don't know about the method, but there was some Methodism. <laughs> but it's an interesting thing, this, because um, the church didn't own these mines. Uh, God did. <laughs> ah, well, there you are. Ah. You've got the Traveller's Rest pub down there. Did, was there. Were there other beer houses in the village? Well, that was the only beer house, actually. But there was, a, there was one at Threlkeld. We could still call it oh. a Threlkeld Jerry. And there'd be two or three at Keswick. The difference was you couldn't buy whiskey or rum in them, but you could get beer. Right. Uh, beer or stout, maybe. Stout. Uh, but you've kept off it all these years. You've been abstaining. I've been, it's, a um, it's a good uh, Methodist. Uh, I'm a bloody liar and all if I tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but anyway, you, 
Your memories are vivid, and uh, I hope I'll see you again soon. Oh, you uh, will do. Anyway, we'll head on up, and uh, I think my wife's ready to give you a, a ride back. Right, right. Good to uh, see you, eh? Right, the steps went out with you. Tim, we said farewell to Eddie and it was such a treat to be with him. Uh, but you've been down Lucy's Tongue not too long ago, this year I think. Yeah, I was really, really lucky. I was taken down by a guy called Warren Allison, who's a person who's, uh, who's missed the Greenside. He's created an amazing collection of archive material. He's very dynamic about trying to tell the story himself of the mine. And he's the guy who holds the key. You will have seen there's a sort of um, an entrance to the Lucy's Tongue and you unlock it, yep. there's several locks, and then you climb down a, through a cement pipe. A porthole. Into, into the side of the mountain. And then you walk. I spent five hours walking through water, looking at the old seams, the amazing sort of rusty things to keep the walls up. It was just a stunning, stunning experience. It, does it, is it stable in there? Will you no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. I mean, one of the things that he has to do, he comes every, I think, six months, something like that, and he goes into the mountain to check whether the walls are still standing. And the answer is there's some pretty unstable stuff. He showed us one escape ladder, uh, which had moved since the last time he was there. So well, luckily we didn't have to, uh, Go up to use that. So, um, no, you're walking through water, and sometimes he was telling us when, uh, when you go down, the water starts rising, you don't know where to go. Of course, they don't have any pumping systems going, so closed since 1962. These massive trails inside cut into the mountain, which when you're walking above it, you haven't a clue. It's sort of no. rabbit's warren of tunnels underneath, and you don't know anything about it. And the strange thing is, for me, all this infrastructure on the outside was all set up basically to get access to a vein which is only about a couple of feet thick. No. So, I mean, they're, and they're attacking it from different levels. I'd mentioned before, I think they're 22 levels. <laughs> it's just mind-boggling to think of the mind work that yes. went into mind-boggling. <laughs> to think of the work that people used to, to cut this... through into the mountainside and having to store it all up with bits of wood and, and so on. Oh. And they were chasing after this, but they could only do it in sort of right-angled sections. Exactly, yeah. And um, I remember we were sitting there having lunch right in the heart of the mountain after two hours. Stunning. And we found old boots, <laughs> uh, all sorts of stuff that had been there for generations, literally. Is, and is, then some beautiful places. So you see turquoise water, the turquoise colour coming from the copper. Because it's not just, of course, lead. There's also there's all silver and there are other minerals there. I have to say, I had a hard time because, of course, I was kitted out with a helmet and a torch and all that, and I'm a pretty big guy. Mm. And the tunnel height was, you know, 15, 20 centimetres lower than me. Oh, so God. I was sort of crawling along this thing, <laughs> bang, banging, banging my head all the time on the helmet. Anyway, fascinating stuff. So it was a stuff. stunning experience. Fascinating. <laughs> I've come up a bit, little bit higher with Tim and we've now got the sun and the breeze and the shadow running across the hillsides and directly ahead I can see up Glenreading back towards Cats to Cam, very distinctive peak and Helvellyn Lower Man which uh, I remember Eddie was telling me what they call Lal Helvellyn 
Castecam, uh, interesting name, the steep hill of the wild cat. And you just see the top of High Spying Howe on the beginnings of Striding Edge. But we're now cut back. This is a zigzagging old uh, bridal route. And in fact, Sticks Pass itself is the highest pass in the Lake District. But um, we won't be going that far. Look at the kestrel over there. It's even it's hovering only about uh, 20 meters off the ground. It's amazing. This is the, the, the joy of these places. Stop and look and pay attention because there's subtle little detail out there. Well, that kestrel's flying way above uh, Lucy's tongue now. Crikey. <laughs> Great thing to see. Uh, and directly above us, it's just come out from the area of juniper, which uh, I, I asked Eddie earlier, and uh, he said that that's been there all along as he's known it. Juniper, it's used for gin, isn't it? That's, uh, yes, one that's of the right. Flavorings yeah. for gin. Yeah. But it, it might have been harvested in time past, but it's still, there's certain areas a little uh, on the fell sides, and this is a healthy area of it. Now, what we're looking at here is Glenridding Common, which recently was transferred to the custodianship of the John Muir Trust. Do you know a great deal about what they're hoping to achieve? Well, the John Muir Trust, of course, is very well established in Scotland, and they've always been interested in trying to look at applying their methods to, to parts of um, uplands in the UK. And uh, so they've uh, negotiated a three-year lease on Glenridding Common. Um, they're very excited about it. Mm. I think the Lake District are, are as well because they believe the John Mill Trust is a very solid partner in terms of looking after wildlife, landscape, conservation interests. It's fair to say that when it, the deal was announced, there was a little bit of controversy, mm. um, mainly new. from people of the communities here. There are two farms in the valley that have sheep Grazing. on the fells grazing, they have rights, grazing rights, and they were very keen to ensure that those rights would be preserved under the new leasehold arrangement, and that is the case. Um, but their strong beliefs that the John Muir Trust will bring more resources, Yes. and uh, maybe a, a different approach in, in some areas. Yes. Interesting enough, there's a lot of very specialist plant biology, alpine ah, plants up right. here, and there's special species that um, because of overgrazing probably, or I mean, all sorts of different reasons for it, the numbers are dwindling. Yes. And so they're trying to see if they can recreate uh, part of the, the landscape that was- Rebuild uh, the habitat. Was, yeah, was yeah. there formerly. Yeah, so the John Trust have got a, a very definite new mental approach they're bringing to it. And uh, I think Pete Barron, who's sort of managing it on their behalf, has got a strong connection with the area. Yes. So it's a bit of continuity as well as fresh things. Absolutely, yes. I, I started a conversation just recently with them because on parts of their property in Scotland, they're actually offering bits of land for people to buy in perpetuity as a contribution to the management of the resources. And I was asking them, well, what are you planning to sell off or to sell the rights, and you, it doesn't mean anything in real terms, it's a way of making extra contributions to the trust. But yeah. saying, oh, I own, if you like, this lump of, of rock over here, this is mine. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not, of course, but you, you know, you, 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 it's a way of building that special link, the sort of symbiotic link between yeah. yourself as a person who loves the wildlife and the piece of land it's you're a, walking over. It's a visceral connection. It is. It's yeah. a very much a visceral connection. connection. So yeah. I think ultimately they may do that, 
But uh, I think that the, the fundraising schemes they've tried like that in Scotland do work very well. And so it'd be interesting to see whether this innovation will bring more resources to uh, yep. conservation management and so on. Yeah. Money, is, money talks. Well, I think they have strong ethical principles. And uh, so I, I personally think they're a very good partner. And wearing my other hat as the chair of the Friends of the Ellswater Way, we're also hoping to establish some close links with them as well, because we believe that their values and ours, which are all about conservation, heritage, um, understanding of the landscape, that's, you know, that's part and parcel of the, the partnership we want to develop yeah. with them. You've got a natural harmony. Anyway, we'll go a bit higher. Yep. <laughs> Well, we came up round by Haystacks. Eddie told me that's what they locally call the headland, Rocky Headland. Uh, it was rough, stony ground, and we've come onto a level section here, and there are evidence of mine workings. Eddie was saying that his grandfather worked on this upper level, and you can see the spoil on the opposite bank on the Sheffield Pike side of the hill. And just below me, there's a great beam that has fallen away, and uh, there's metalwork and so forth you get a really sense of the ghosts of the past, leaping you back another 50 or more years. And we're being drawn into the Swarthbeck Ravine. Swarth meaning dark, and it is a dark little corner. These sort of places are pure magic. I've been stumbling up through the intimacy of Swarthbeck. I was drawn here off the strict line of the Sticks Pass so that I could really get close to it and sense the natural change. We've been witnessed a, a little weir and uh, the last evidence of the mine engineering and we're now with the natural beck itself just as it makes its transition and then it'll open again into a, a great amphitheatre and then on as Sticks Gill. It's a magical little narrow path but we'll soon rise up and I've got to scramble up the bank now to link up with Tim who's gone quite a few strides ahead of me. It's such a peaceful spot here, isn't it, Tim? It's just, you know, ravishing. Ra well, it's, we are fortunate. <laughs> We've just had a nice little break. As is any decent walk has a moment. If you've got the sun, you sit down. And, and there's evidence of mine activity above us. It's maybe a dam or something in this, this hollow. And up on Greenside, there's two great collapsed areas, which on the map is, says quarry, but they look like they've been collapsed or exploded or something. At one time after the war, when the, the, there was a, a nuclear test ban treaty being negotiated, uh, there was an issue about whether or not uh, you could tell whether people were secretly exploding nuclear bombs underground and getting away with it. So in fact there was a moment in the history of Greenside Mine when the Atomic Energy Authority decided to use the mine to test it out, to do actual explosions underground and see from the surface whether or not the uh, explosions could be detected. I don't know how they selected Greenside for this experiment. But they, they did it, I believe there were two large explosions taken down right at the bottom of the mine. And uh, in fact, the results were quite worrying because it turned out that you couldn't detect ah. these explosions. And so 
the, the, those negotiating the nuclear test ban treaty were saying, oh, well, we don't actually have any proof if we sign it that people are, are not secretly doing this research. So there's a historic moment um, where Greenside Mine actually features in international negotiations with the United States and others, all linked to its role in detection of nuclear explosions. Greenside, this area, marks its place in history. And of course, the sadness of what those explosions means is that the lower galleries are ruined, they're flooded, and will never be explored ever again. And nuclear bombs will go on. There's actually an even sadder side to that, because I believe after the explosions, work was needed to try to sort out how to deal with the, the rubble and so on. And two people ended up dying oh. as a result of this. So it's in a, in a, it's a sort of... Uh, a rather sad part of the Greenside history in one way, that whilst it was making a contribution to, to international diplomacy, actually local people were, were killed oh, in, that, in the pursuit of peace. Wow, there we are, made it, top of Sheffield Pike. It's a beautiful little tapered top. And from here, Wow, look at the lovely view back. Looking west, see the shallow saddle of Styx Pass and the gentle whale back of Styabara Dodd running on from Greenside. And a little pillow in the distance, that's Great Dodd. See the Great Cairn on there. To the right of that is Hartside. And then Burkitt Fell, you can see the Cairn on Burkitt Fell. Now the significance of Burkitt Fell is that Lord Norman Burkitt campaigned to protect Ellswater from being turned into a reservoir. There would have been a great dam at Pooley Bridge, the village there, and it just shows how city corporations in, uh, of that time, in the 1950s and 60s, were still looking to exploit any source of major water. And today, Ellswater looks a serene, elegant queen of a lake. And you look from here, east towards the Pennines and Crossfell, and then the great sweep of the High Street Range, very angular over in Martindale, and I can see Red Screes, and up round to Striding Edge and Helvellyn, which is dominated actually from this angle by Castacam. I was just going to fill in one piece of information on Lord Burkett, you know, who gave his life actually to the preservation of Ellsworth two days after his, after his epic speech in the House of Lords. He died. Oh, Christ. So his, you know, his swan song, he didn't see it. He didn't see the result of all his campaigning. But we see it now. We see absolutely breathtaking beauty all around us. Just here to our, <laughs> at our feet, we've got a, a stone set in the ground. It's got H on one side. Oh, wow. Yeah. And M on the other. Yeah. I, I hope it's the right way round because H, and that's looking east, is the Howard family. Excellent. And M, looking west, M is Marshall. Uh, they have Patterdale Hall. So that, that you're seeing the divide of two great estates. And uh, I don't know how many visitors will be quite aware of that, but you very often get fences across the fells or the re remnants of them for when the fells were sliced up into the great estates. But truly, we have freedom on the fells because they are open common. Yep, yep. And that's the great gift that we've got to hold on to. So you have to help me with a task. Whenever I come to uh, the summit, a Wainwright summit, 
I have to build what I call an ephemera. Oh yes. So it's a piece of rock art. Right. It's called ephemera because if it's windy, it lasts 30 seconds. Right. If it's not windy, you know, the next person up a week later will still see it. So I have to go through this ritual, I'm afraid. I have to find 10 stones right. and I build it on the top. And then, as you know, when people come past, I say, what the hell is this? What's going on? <laughs> what fool has created this sort of thing? Well, that fool often is me. <laughs> there you are. Oh, you see, it no, lasted it a last. second. Oh my God! I need to. I, I think my... it's all over and done with. It. <laughs> it's history already. <laughs> well, Tim, we've made it to Heron Pike, which is a subsidiary top to Sheffield Pike, and it's a very definite peak. Uh, the name Heron Pike refers to the sea eagle, Urn Pike. So obviously, in days gone by, they would have perched here. And we're looking down on Glenridding Dodd, which looks very lowly from here with its trees and moss dale. And uh, Ullswater, you see almost the entire length, and it's quite breezy, and it's bringing out the yachts from the marina. What do you think of it then, Tim? Well, I just feel such pride and privilege in, in living in a place like this. I can almost see my house from here. It's just mind-boggling, you know? Yeah, people say this is the most beautiful lake in England. I think it's the most beautiful lake in the world. I've never seen anything so beautiful. We are virtually the only people on the hills. I'm looking at least 50 miles. I'm in the center of a circle, 50 miles radius. And you know, <laughs> apart from a few houses here and there, boats, there's no one here. There's one you hear about 19 million people coming to the Lake District every year. They go to They're not here. They go to Windermere anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for Owl's Water. Thank you again. Cheers. Cheers, Mark. At the end of uh, a fine walk, we are sitting in the Traveller's Rest pub at the top of Glen Ridding. What a lovely day. It's been a stunning day and I've really enjoyed the company we've had. Tim was magic. He's full of fascinating stories. He has a great grasp of the valley and great concern for its well-being and the community. And uh, it's seeking to really act as sort of a guide to its future you can't just let things happen yes this kind of uh, eternal vigilance for the community yeah this uh, this is the landscape of people like when he was saying we were walking over a landscape that where deep below our feet people work for hundreds of years and lots of them it's quite remarkable and eddie paul was a sheer delight a man who evokes the mining community and his memories are vivid and he clearly loved his work and what was achieved um, and he followed on from his father and his grandfather. You've got that wonderful continuity that he evoked. This is a working community. It works today in tourism, uh, but there, it, there are people who have worked here for 
a long time. I thought it was interesting, the international perspective, that we talked about three times today. Uh, firstly, that at one time the mine here was one of the richest seams in the world, and subsequent to that, we've obviously had the, the, the global perspective with Al Gore and the, yep. the floods then. Floods and, uh, yeah. And then the, the atomic testing. For a little quiet backwater, it's... It's punched pretty high. Yeah, it, it does. That's right. And it just goes to show when, when people and great landscapes come together, great things happen. A lovely walk as well. It's the first time I've been up the route that you picked today. A very quiet little backwater, that. Beautiful glades and lots of trees up above the back there. Yeah, got Swarth Beck. It's rather charming, but it's raw and wild. And then you come up into that great, huge basin the uh, low green side and Stang End and then we swept back up onto Sheffield Pike and you're really involved with the whole Oldswater scene when you get up there but well well removed well removed oh, yeah. and you don't get the sense of lots of people which is lovely you, you, you value the solitude of the place but you see people down in, on the lake clearly enjoying themselves and it's a place of pleasure and re refreshment I think it's fair to say yes, if, you, if you want to day out from Gled Reading but you really don't want to see anybody but a little trip up Sheffield Pike fantastic idea oh, absolutely superb it's time for us now to go our own ways uh, but we are back for the next episode uh, a couple of weeks time yeah episode three Mark what, what you have that? you planned for us yeah well I'm, I, I come from farming stock but I was down in Oxfordshire uh, but I was a beef farmer and I've got two c cattle farmers lined up one who was in, into beef and one is into dairy uh, close to Hadrian's Wall so I think although I love Hadrian's Wall our focus will be far more on their lives and how they are using their setting to best advantage. So we're heading north and we're heading to meadows and pasture land and, and farming. Absolutely and two really intriguing and dedicated people. I look forward to it immensely. Thanks again, Mark, for leading us on another fine walk. Oh, my pleasure.